Friends, 2,074. That's the number of those who have died in the U.S. from the coronavirus just this past Friday. 20,597. That's how many have died since the start of the outbreak. As of last night, more than any other nation across the globe. 26,000. That's how many die every year across the world from cancer. 50,000. That's how many die across the world each year from cardiovascular disease. 60 million. That's how many, it's estimated, died just in 2019. Friends, that's not merely a statistic. Every one of those individuals represents an image-bearing soul, one with a mother and a father, with families and siblings and friends, those who wailed and wept over them and will never be the same without them. Friends, as much as we might want to ignore death, death is all about us. Mm -hmm. The gravestones that dot our landscape, the fading pictures of loved ones lost that hang on our walls. Lord, even, even the name that some of us were given in honor of that deceased relative, that grandmother or that grandfather. Friends, death, it's always here, always lurking in the background, always whispering to us through the ache in the knee or through the, the slow slipping of the mind. We can't reverse death. We can't stop it. We can't run from it. The best we can possibly do is delay it. Though some try as they might to put a positive spin on it. So Steve Jobs once said, death is very likely the single best invention of life. Death is life's great change agent. It clears out the old in order to make way for the new. Friends, that's sort of death as nature's own recycling program. But I just wouldn't exactly encourage you to try a line like that by the graveside of a bereaved widow. Friend, that will provide no hope no comfort, that doesn't seem in any way to deal with the severity of death. Friend, few consider death to be a friend, to be a welcome change agent, to be any kind of a comfort or a peace. Friend, what will you do before the crushing weight of death's inevitability? What will you do before its finality? Friends, culture increasingly runs from questions like this, and yet the Bible actually confronts these questions head on. And one such passage in which it does that is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn there now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn, uh, if you are unfamiliar with this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and it's really a letter of pastoral counsel and admonition to a church that was in the midst of great crisis. And here at the very end of the letter, his concern is that their faith 
may all go up in smoke, that their faith and everything they've worked for it all might be in vain. That word in vain brackets the chapter. It begins the chapter, it ends the chapter. We'll read it throughout the chapter. And he's going to open chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. He's going to open reminding them of the gospel that he taught them. He says in verse 3, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received. And right there, notice Paul. Paul didn't make up the gospel. He didn't invent it, didn't fabricate it, dream it, contrive it in any way. No, he received it. Right? He received and he's passing it on to them. And the core of this gospel, right in verse 3, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And then Paul's going to go on to note a whole host of people to whom Christ appeared. And it seems verses 3 to 6 are really an early confession of faith. And it's clear, it's clear that this faith is grounded in facts of history. Right, replete with eyewitness testimony, which is why he mentions all these names as he continues. And at the center of this message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet apparently it's this very truth that the Corinthians themselves were doubting and questioning. So follow along with me. Look with me to chapter 15, down at, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, friends, the key issue we see is right there in verse 12. Some are denying that Christ rose from the dead. Now, as modernists, we sometimes may think that we're these sort of only enlightened ones who would, who would question miracles and doubt the resurrection, look suspiciously at such things. And yet to the Greeks, really just about pretty much to all the ancients, the resurrection of the body was a preposterous idea. It was a laughable idea. In fact, to many Greeks, the goal of death was to shed ourselves of this body, like like old tattered clothes. We need to be rid of it. We need to be set free, set free into a new spiritual realm. That's what the, the Greco-Roman world, that's what they longed for, a bodily resurrection. Well, that would have been a grotesque thought. And so it seems some, even in the church of Corinth, were beginning 
to shed the whole idea of the resurrection. And friend, that's not just a Corinthian problem. That is very much a contemporary problem as well. So I read recently a study within, uh, done by the BBC that found nearly 50% of all professing Christians in Britain reject the resurrection. Professing Christians, nearly half actually reject the resurrection. You know, I, many of you will know I was raised uh, largely as a Unitarian, spent some time going to Unitarian churches, and they too reject the physical resurrection of Christ. So when they speak of the resurrection of Christ, they don't mean his physical body. They'll talk about it, but they mean his presence in the church, sort of his body on earth, infused by Jesus' own spirit and sacrifice. When they talk about the resurrection, that's all they mean. They don't mean that it physically happened, just that it happened spiritually in our own hearts. But notice Paul's basic point in verses 12 to 18 is that if there is no bodily, physical resurrection, there's no redemption. He's saying no resurrection means no redemption. No resurrection, no redemption, period. That's it. For Paul, the resurrection is not something we can mythologize away, where the point you know, isn't the historical event, but some spiritual meaning behind it. Paul will have none of that. Rather, for Paul, the resurrection is the axis on which the story of the entire world turns. So notice how Paul really lays out this, this row of theological dominoes, where if you knock one down, the whole thing comes crashing down. The whole edifice comes crashing down. So he says, if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if there's no resurrection, recognize I'm wasting my life by preaching to you. And right now you're wasting your life by listening to me. And not only that, he says that there's no resurrection, verse 15, we're actually caught lying about God. He's saying we're actually guilty of blasphemy, which to a Jew would be an incredibly serious charge, one that would come with the death penalty. But that's not all he goes on. He says if there's no resurrection, verse 16, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that sounds a bit odd to throw it in at this point, but Paul's noting how Jesus, both fully God and fully man, how Jesus shares a body with us. So if our bodies won't rise, then it means Jesus' own body won't rise. That's what Paul's getting at there. And if there's no resurrection, verse 17, another domino falls. Not only is our faith futile, but notice what he says. We're still in our sins. Just let that sink in for a moment. If there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus, you are still in your sins. Paul saying no resurrection means nobody is getting to heaven. Not one. Every one of us still in our sins. If Christ is still dead, then Paul saying Christianity, it's nothing more than a bunch of tired and trite cliches that you'll get on a Hallmark card. That's all it is. And why is that, friends? Because what help can a corpse possibly give? A dead Savior is no Savior. A dead Savior can do 
nothing for you. Absolutely nothing for you. Which means, verse 18, those who Paul says have fallen asleep in Christ, and that fallen asleep is just a euphemism for death. So Paul is saying, those who have died believing in Christ, he's saying they perished. And that word perished there speaks actually to eternal judgment and eternal perishing. He's saying they've died in their sins too, which means they have slipped into the grave still bearing that guilty verdict, which means finally verse 19, he says, we like among all people, of all people, we are to be, Paul says, most to be pitied, right? Most to be pitied. Paul's saying, if Christ has not been raised, we are all martyrs to an illusion, right? We might as well have believed in fairies. That's Paul's point. Now, some of you will know, some of you will know that just over 15 years ago, Bobby Henderson, uh, you may know that name, he was a, he's a graduate physics student, and he was getting a little worn out with some of the religion that was being taught in his minds and schools, and so he decided to found the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. That's right, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. They call themselves Pastafarians, which I confess, every time I say it, I laugh. I mean, it's, it's actually quite funny if you think about it, Pastafarians. Anyway, they're recognized. They're an officially recognized religion in many countries of the world. And in this religion that he created, you know, he said there was this tangle of spaghetti flanked by two meatballs, and one night they got completely wasted, this is literally what the religion teaches. And at the end of that, they created the world. And thus, voila, this is what we have. Now, of course, it's all a satire, right? It's all a joke. It's meant to be a joke. We're meant to laugh at it. That's the point. Because for many Pastafarians, right, that story, it's meant to be just as ridiculous as the thought that a poor Jewish rabbi might have been crucified by the Romans, and then raised to life. And then he might one day come back across the sky riding on a white horse, ready to take all of his people into a new heavens and a new earth. Of course, to them, that's a laughable idea. It's a ridiculous idea. And Paul says, you know what? If Christ hasn't been raised, they're right. The Pastafarians are right. It is a ridiculous idea. Everything we believe is a joke if Christ has not been raised. They're right to mock us. You see, this is the whole problem with those who want to treat Christianity merely as a functional religion. You know, as a functional religion, meaning uh, when it comes to truth claims, right, those really aren't the issue. We'll just put those aside. We can discard them. Really, when it comes to functional religion, the question is whether or not the religion works for you, whether or not it works for you, right? Do the practices do they bring peace? Do all the rituals, right? Do those rituals help you relax? It ignores all the theological elements. It just focuses more on the social elements, the gatherings, the community, maybe the psychological elements of religion. Friends, that's how many treat religion today. You know, I've read of talk of a return to religion in this post sort of COVID-19 world. An SBC leader, a Southern Baptist Convention leader this week said that we're on the verge of a, quote, massive return to church. This is all going to be a great boon for our churches. Now, maybe he's right. 
But one writer from the New York Times this week noted herself, yeah, that she's looking for faith community, but not because she's really trying to answer life's ultimate questions. No, she says she's pretty much got those figured out. She actually called herself an atheist, and yet she was still interested in having a faith community. Why? Well, because she needs a community during this trying time. And so she's looking merely to what practices, right? What rituals might help her, might assist her by implication until everything goes back to normal and she can just return to her old way of life. But just notice how Paul, he'll have none of that. Either Christianity is true or it isn't. Whether or not it works is entirely not the question. If it's not true, Paul says, we are to be most pitied. Friend, why is that? Christian, particularly, why is that? Why are you to be most pitied if the resurrection isn't true? I mean, just think of all the time you give, the time you spend in your Bibles, the time you spend gathering with other Christians in church, right? When we used to be able to do that together as a church body, consider the hours you spend, consider the Sundays, the time you spend during the week, maybe meeting with struggling saints, the time that you could have spent furthering your career, the time you could have spent in your garden or on vacations or doing more things with your kid or perhaps practicing, you know, another hobby, maybe just sleeping in all the time you've lost, maybe just sleeping in an effort to serve Christ. Friend, think of all the money that you have burned if Christianity isn't true. The money that you've given to church, the money you've given to support missionaries. Think of how all that money could have been used to bolster your own retirement accounts. Or how it could have been a down payment on a house, a house you've had to delay because of your commitment to Christ. It could have been a down payment on a second house. Maybe all that money meant you wouldn't have had to take out a loan for your own child's education. Pity us, Paul is saying, for all of the wasted efforts, for all of the wasted money. Paul's saying, pity the teenagers who are mocked and chided for refusing to fit in. Pity them for the derision. Pity them for all of the popularity they've forfeited because they say they believe in a resurrected Christ. Pity the way some of you have stuck through tough marriages who have endured trials and repeated unhappiness. Pity you for not just quitting and moving on like the rest of the world would tell you to do. Pity us for all of our strange decisions. Pity us for all of our outlandish beliefs, for our, eff- our wasted efforts, for all of our quiet Sundays lost, for the way we forbear with others, for the way in which we seek to love difficult people, for an unwavering trust that we have in the Bible. Friends, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are to be most pitied. Our lives are a joke because a dead Christ is dead. He can do nothing for you. But a living Christ, he can do everything for you. He can do everything for you. And that's part of what we see in verses 20 through 28, as Paul goes on, what does this living Christ do? We'll listen to what we read. 1 Corinthians 15, continuing on in 
in verse 20. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who, he is accepted rather, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Well, friends, in these verses, we're given a preview into the future, really a sneak preview of what's to come. And what we're seeing is the death of death itself. That's what these verses record. What does a living Christ do? Paul says, he destroys death. That's what a living Christ does. He destroys death. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death as Christ stands and pins death under his feet. Now, we can't fathom that. You know, ever since the creation of the world, man has been seeking to escape death, to try and prevent death whether it's some ancient quest for some springs of eternal life somewhere across the globe, or whether or not it's in supplements, or whether or not it's in essential oils, or the miracles of modern medicine. We've all been trying, in some ways, to escape death. We try to outrun it, each in our own way. And yet, we know we can't beat it. Try as we might, it catches up to every one of us, and then it steamrolls us into the grave. Just look around you. If you're there with others, look around you. Think of those closest to you. All that you have, all that you value, death will take that from you. Your spouse, your children, your family and friends, your wealth, your assets, your knees, your hips, your eyes, your ears, nothing is more greedy than death. Nothing more greedy than death. It takes everything from you. It must have everything. As the lines on your face form over the years, that is death whispering to you. As those lines turn into deeper folds, that is death knocking at your door. As the skin becomes brittle, as the mind starts to slow, and it starts to scramble like some old VHS tape, right, that eventually gets spit out of the recorder, that is death coming for you. 
and we can't destroy it, right? The best we can do is to delay it. We can't conquer it. The best we can do is try and cover over it, maybe with some makeup, maybe with some humor. You know, one once quipped, life is hard, then you die. And then they throw dirt in your face. And then the worms eat you. And at least you can be happy that it happens in that order. Right? That's how some have to make light of death. Because, friends, that is the brutal future that awaits us. You know, Plato lamented, must all things be swallowed up in death? Friend, every one of us were born into these beautiful cradles located in shallow graves. Birth certificates wrapped in death certificates. Because Paul says in verse 22, so in Adam all die. Now right there, Paul's probably alluding to Genesis 5 there where the Bible summarizes Adam's descendants and he goes from Adam to Seth to Enos and the like. And then he goes down the list, what's the constant refrain after each one? And he died. And he died. Death's roll call. That's what we've been seeing since the beginning of Genesis 3. And that roll call has continued throughout human history. Death's roll call is read time and time again. Sort of like in a prison. You know, in prisons, I know it used to be at least that they, they do that roll call at night. And then they do that roll call in the morning as the prisoners have to stand at the entrance of their cells as their names are called. Right, One by one, they're summoned. And so one by one, they appear. Friend, we are all held captive in death's prison. All of us, we march to death's summons. And every name from the beginning of time, every name has had to bow before that call. Until one morning, a name was called. And he had entered into that cell the night before, but when the roll call came, when death's roll call that next morning was given, he didn't step forward. And so death yelled, making its threats, and yet he still didn't show. And so death screamed, and death hollered, and yet he was not there. There was one who never had to bow to that roll call, one man who escaped the prison of death, one man who did not have to answer that call. Friends, that man is Jesus Christ. He escaped death's grasp. Paul says the first fruits there in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? First fruits, what do they imply? They imply later fruits, something else is to come. It implies Christ will return to that prison and he will start breaking his people out. That's what it implies. Yet it happens, Paul says, it happens in a particular order. Right? Verse 23, Christ the first fruits, referring to that first resurrection so many years ago when three lowly women, discouraged women, went to this tomb to anoint the dead Jesus, lament over his body, only what, right? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Then at his coming, Paul says, those who belong to Christ, then when he speaks of his coming there, 
That word coming is used consistently of Christ's second coming. So he's saying there, when Christ returns in the future, when he returns, then he'll break down the door to death's prisons. He will bend back the bars and so release the captives and free the prisoners. And then verse 24 comes the end. When Christ destroys every rule, every power, every authority. And only then, the last enemy death will be destroyed. And then Christ will hand the kingdom over to his father, that God himself might be all in all. Verse 28. So my Christian friend, don't miss the connection between our resurrection and God's exaltation. Don't miss the connection between the two. Paul's saying, we will be resurrected because God will be exalted. As surely as God will be exalted over the earth, so you will be resurrected from the earth. That's our confidence. As surely as he will be praised, one day we will be raised. Death will be no more. But friends, that's not the destiny of all, universally, that comes to all. Notice verse 23. This is the hope, Paul says, for those who belong to Christ. Who belong to Christ. Because at the end of the day, we all have a choice to make. Will we follow the path of our first parents in Adam? Right? Will we choose the path of self-rule? Or will we follow God's rule? That rule held out for us in Jesus Christ. Right? Will we be found in Adam? Or will we be found in Christ? That's the choice that's laid out for us. That's what Paul is even laying out for us here. In Adam, Paul's saying we will die. We will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will bear the weight of our sins alone, without a mediator, without a savior. Or in Christ, we will die. Yes, we will die if he doesn't come first. And we will stand as well before the judgment seat of God. But in Christ, he will have borne the judgment of our sins. There on the cross, he will have taken it all. Every last punishment, every stroke he received, bearing the wrath of God against our sins, he served as our substitute so that when we stand before God, we have nothing of which we're guilty because Christ has borne it all. One verdict, guilty in Adam for eternity. The other, through repenting of your sins, placing your faith in Christ, forgiven, free for all eternity. Friends, those are two drastically different choices that reflect two drastically different paths of life and that result in two drastically different outcomes in the next life. The issue is not at all whether or not Christianity works or whether or not we like what Jesus had to say. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Friends, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't need to worry about what he said. But if he did rise from the dead, we would be absolute fools not to accept 
all that he said. We don't have to go to the grave with some fuzzy optimism that somehow things might work out in the end. Right? Blind optimism is nothing but a wish, and that wish has no warrant. But we can have, as the old liturgies say, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. We can have that. Friend, a dead Christ can do nothing for you. A living Christ can do everything for you. Friend, where does that leave you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise that that you speak so clearly to us. Even through Paul and these words right here, you remind us of the centrality of Jesus Christ, not just his death, but also his resurrection. Lord, that that resurrection proves something. It proves not only that we will be resurrected, but that Christ will be exalted. And on that basis of Christ's exaltation, we can be certain of our own resurrection with him. Lord, we give you such praise that you offer us such wonderful promises in this life that we don't have to be most pitied. Oh God, while graveyards, while they point to the brevity of this life, oh God, we give you praise that the resurrection points to the brevity of death for everyone who is in Christ. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Amen.